ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening so far. I'm, I'm really pleased to introduce my guest, Mr. Marshall Brandon. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Really a pleasure to be here today. It's great to have you. I'm going to tell the audience, prepare to be inspired, at least I think, prepare to be inspired because you have quite a story. Um, for those listening, um, this, this breaks the mold a bit. This podcast, um, it's a fantastic human interest story. It's a fantastic story that with God, all things are possible. And um, so we're going to talk to Marshall about his story and his path. Is that okay? Wonderful. I look forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us who you are. Where are you from? A little bit about your background, and then we'll get a little bit more specific about a book that's coming out. Oh, wonderful, John. My name's Marshall Brandon, and I'm going to start from the beginning. I was actually born in Alabama. I was born in a place called Owens Crossroads, Alabama, a little community outside of Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, I'm one of six children, number five. Um, so my father was a sharecropper. Uh, my grandfather was actually born into slavery. His name is Joe Brandon. Joe Brandon was born in 1859. My father is uh, the youngest of 18 children. Mm. Uh, my grandfather, Joe, had uh, nine children by one wife, and then he remarried, and he had nine by the second wife, my grandmother. And so uh, my dad is the youngest of those 18, or was the youngest, my dad's deceased now. But uh, so we, my dad moved to um, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, the Yo, as we call it, uh, in 1951. Okay. Um, and we soon followed. He came up, got established, started working in the steel mill, and got established, got a place, and we were soon to follow. I was a very young fella at that time. How old were you? I was actually three. And so your mom stayed back, and he came by himself. Yep. And so I was three when we came up. They told me I got pneumonia and almost passed away and all that kind of thing. So started out pretty rough uh, uh, with that transition from the south to the north. And uh, so that's where I'm from. And then I uh, was raised uh, in, in Youngstown pretty much. And uh, that's where I'm, where I'm from. I'm from Akron now. This is where I've lived the longest. One of the greatest cities on the planet, Akron, Ohio. That's what I'm talking about, Akron, Ohio. Let's talk about it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep on that because we know that AK is the place to be, right? That's it. <laughs> and we love Cleveland, but, you know, LeBron always reminds people, I'm from Akron. I mean, just a kid from Akron. Just a kid from Akron. Yeah, Cleveland yeah. and Akron, we love them both, but two different places. That's for sure, yeah. <laughs> if you went to Akron U versus CSU, you make sure people know. That's right. So... That's good. So, okay, so you were born in Alabama. Great fact to know, but came up here very young. Did you go to school? That You went to school then in Youngstown? You went, you yeah, born started, and raised in Youngstown. Born, well, I was born, I'm born. sorry, born in Alabama, but raised in Youngstown. Raised in Youngstown, right? actually, yeah. Started kindergarten in Youngstown, Ohio when I was five. So I came when I was three, started school in, in uh, okay. Youngstown. Great, great, great. Well, let's talk about your path then. From childhood to young adulthood, um, what was it like growing up? Um, and then, when you got into young adulthood, what was your first, what was your first venture out of Youngstown? Oh, that's interesting. Very good question. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting because uh, we were. Uh, now I know we were poor. 
and uh, we couldn't afford the OR. We were poor. I didn't know I was poor until I found out <laughs> later on that we were poor. But even with my father working with uh, six children in the house and two adults, it uh, it was a, it was a strain at times. And so, um, I, you know, part of the thing for my life was I remember at five coming home and um, seeing my mother kissing on a, kissing another man. And uh, from that point on, I. I told my father, when my father came home, I remember telling my father, hey, Dad, Mom, Mom was kissing on another man. I knew something wasn't right about that. I didn't know what, but I knew something wasn't right about it. And um, so when he came home, an argument ensued. I remember him leaving, storming out. My mother was a rageaholic. So she quickly said, oh, so... <laughs> uh, You'll never tell on me again. And so I, she commenced to beating me. I got a beating. I remember that. And threw me in a closet and left me in that closet uh, a long time. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming out. She said, you, you better never tell on me again. So I felt abandoned by my dad. I felt he didn't protect me. He left me. So I, from that point on, I became very much the process of introvert, being an introvert through that experience of not telling and keeping my mouth shut and keeping family secrets and those kind of things. So uh, I was a very quiet kid, but had a deep rage because mm. uh, I couldn't express myself. So it was in me uh, to be very angry. And uh, so a lot of that began to manifest itself in my life, in school, in the family. Um, and in, in, so I started to, I had to learn how to fight uh, because I had uh, three older brothers who, from a dysfunctional home who uh, took advantage, just bullied you and punched you and those kind of things. So I learned, uh, I may get a beating from my mother, but ain't nobody else going to beat me. Oh, yeah. Now, if I, could, now, I couldn't beat them, but I could run. I learned to run pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So I knew how to throw a rock or something, but the fight wasn't over. <laughs> so you <laughs> we, could deal with the, the dysfunction with your mom, but you thought nobody else going to get even with you. I made up my mind early on. It won't be any more beatings, not not without some retaliation. I, mm-hmm. Nobody, I wasn't gonna fight back. So, mm-hmm. looking for a fight, you could get it. You were gonna get one, and uh, so that became sort of my persona. I uh, lived that out, and in Youngstown, it's very blue collar, tough, tough place, tough town. You know, very macho fighting. Now, you know, showing your 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 manhood and that kind of thing on on the streets, and so I. Um, quickly begin to get a reputation of somebody who could who could fight. And uh, that gave me some uh, leadership in terms of folks who looked up to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I um, uh, got involved in gangs, uh, started a gang actually, uh, me and some few other friends. And so we had a gang and I was the leader of that gang and uh, we got into some pretty deep stuff. It wasn't it's organized, so, uh, the Bloods or Crips or any of that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm young, I'm 12, 13, so we're, we're doing, it had the process that began. So mm-hmm. that led me up to uh, no direction in my life, really. Both my parents, my father went, uh, he said today, sixth grade, I think. My mom was, so they're very uneducated. I don't necessarily parallel uneducation, uneducated with intelligence. Right, right, right. So they were intelligent. My mom was intelligent enough to pay the bills and read and do some of those kinds. But she said she went to the eighth grade. So, uh, but by the time I probably was third grade, I could read, 
better than most people in my family. I was blessed to be able to, to mm-hmm. read, learn things. Languages. A prolific reader. I loved reading. We didn't have many books in the house so because they couldn't read. Puzzles, those kind of things were absent in our home. So I would read anything I could get my hands on. I, a lot of times there was a newspaper and the comics. And I remember uh, because it's a very dysfunctional state in my home, how am I going to get out of here? He would say, I don't, you know, I would have ran away. I didn't know how to run away. But one of my favorite um, columns was um, Orphan Annie. Okay. And the reason I loved Orphan Annie was because of Big Daddy Warbucks. Mm-hmm. And he came and rescued her. So I would dream when I was a kid, like, maybe one day this guy's going to drive up in a limousine and put me in this car and take me away from this. And I'll, you know, life will be so much better for me. So that was my hope. I put my hope yeah. in those kind of things. So, but uh, that didn't happen, and, and you know, we'll get later in the story. I'll tell you how uh, how Big Daddy rolled up, but he had a different name, and uh, how I got rescued in a different way. But so here I am, sixteen, seventeen, in trouble, fighting, uh, doing things that uh, many of my friends were getting sent to prison, uh, boys industrial school, um, those kind of places, and I knew I was on my way. But it was something innately within me. I didn't want that. I wanted something more, but I didn't know how to get it. I didn't know what to do. I had no direction. And so um, finally I got into an altercation at school. And they said, the detectives came and said, Marsh, you come one more time. We're going to send you away. And that really, you know, resonated with me. And I said, I don't know what to do about this. So as I'm walking around running to some friends who had just enlisted uh, in the service. And they said, well, we're getting ready to go into the service. Why don't you come go with us? What year was that about? That was 1965. 1965, so Vietnam era. Right smack dab. Right in the middle of it. But I'm politically naive. I don't know anything about just the, uh, you know, war going on. Sure. So I said, yeah, it's a way out. So they said, well, you're only 17. Your parents have to sign for you. So I said, okay, let me go home and ask them. And I did. And when I went home, they, they agreed to do it. And so I joined the service. At, at 17? At 17. Hmm. And I thought I was pretty streetwise. I thought I knew a few things. But I come to find out I was, I was naive. You just are what you are. I mean, you know, I was a very naive young man. So anyhow, I began to service as a way of growing you up, uh, maturing mm-hmm. in especially the war. So I get in at 17, uh, I'm trained in um, chemical and biological warfare um, in Anderson, Alabama, uh, top flight clearance, clearance number one, went to Edgewood Arsenal, Maryland, where they made it and did a lot of experiment, experimental things with drugs and uh, warfare things. And so uh, then they shipped my unit to um, Vietnam, but I'm still 17. So they said, wait a minute, you can't go yet because you have to be 18 to go to Vietnam. Goodness. So my unit shipped out uh, probably two months before me. I was two months away from turning 18. As soon as I turned 18, they gave orders, <laughs> you're going to Vietnam. And uh, Back to your unit? I thought. I didn't know where I was going. They cut orders, I thought, but I know I didn't end up with my unit. You, a new unit. A new unit, so they have what they call OJT over in the service. So wherever they need you, they put you. Well, you'll learn the job on the job training. They call. Mm-hmm. It. Well, I didn't train for that. That's okay. We'll we'll teach you. So um, anyhow, I, I come home for thirty days. Um, 
not knowing if I ever come back, you know, and very sad time and tears and those kind of things at the airport and uh, head off to Vietnam. I remember landing in Vietnam and uh, the first thing that hit me was the smell. And there were guys getting on the plane who had been there, usually your term of duty was one year. Mm -hmm. They had finished their first term. So they were saying, we've done ours, we're going home. Now you gotta do yours. Mm -hmm. So we're crossing, we're getting off, they're getting on. And uh, then I'm hearing these strange, this language obviously is Vietnamese and I obviously didn't understand it. And anyhow, here I am in the middle of a jungle. I mean, I'm from leaving what we call the world at the time. And here I am in the middle of a jungle going, my goodness. What, what have I gotten into? What have I gotten into? What and is wh this? What What struck you about the smell? What was the smell? The smell was with a place without sewer system. Okay, that's and what that was your first impression. Oh, it you go. It's bad. <laughs> probably most people, are, you know, unless unless you're getting fired upon, or, you know, bombs are coming in or something, that will obviously take priority. But the smell will would impact you, and it's. It's amazing how well you adapt before long. It's, it's it normal. Smell like anything. No, it's, it is what it is. You but know. Let's let's bookmark that thought for a second. I, I want our audience to know that we're working to um, a book, which is in pre-order right now, right? Correct. And so um, you have a book coming out soon called "Some Place to Be Somebody." Correct. That's correct. And so that book has. Is, is with the editor, with the publisher, and, right. and they're now... Endgame Press is Endgame the name of the publisher. Okay, yeah. Endgame Press. And uh, you have a, a co-author, Lisa Baker. Baker. Correct. Um, okay, good. And she's got a great story, too, so let's hold that thought. So while you were in the military in Vietnam, you you had been trained in chemical biological warfare. That was your MOS. But now did you, did you get a new on-a-job training assignment when you were in Vietnam? I certainly did, yeah. They put me in ordinance. Ordinance? Ordinance, yeah. No. But it's still a destructive mode. It's like still a destructive mode. So everything having to do with hurting bullets, bombs, uh, you know, missiles, yeah, all of that, that's what I became. Rigging them up? Became a part. I didn't rig them up, but I issued them to those. Okay. So I was in a logistics unit that supplied, like, 1st Air Cavalry is where I was. Uh, the guys uh, that were out there actually, well, in Vietnam it wasn't a front line, so mortars, you were you were on the battlefield wherever you were. Wherever you were. Yeah. Was Vietnam a positive or negative experience for you? Was it, was it better or worse than Youngstown, or was it all of it? Was it the best of times, worst of times, or was it just a bad time? Like, what, what was it like? What was the experience? It was, it was um, a horrific time. Uh, with, you know, people dying around you, with uh, living with a sense of you could die at any moment. Uh, when you went out, you were ready. You, you know, you carried your rifle. You were locked and loaded. So living with a sense of somebody wants to hurt you at any moment, and that could happen. Was all the time. All the time. So you just, that's how you lived, you know, if you wanted to live. So now you're thinking about survival. How will I make it back? Will I ever get back on? And uh, so mm -hmm. it, for me though, what's interesting about 1965 and, you know, actually it was 66 by the time I shipped to Vietnam, was our country was in a state of transition. And as a black man, um, I'm starting to become politically aware that uh, civil rights movement was big, 
Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, a uh, number of, of different leaders and marching and getting our rights, especially in the South and places um, where we couldn't ride, where we couldn't eat. And so there was a lady uh, propagandist uh, named Hanoi Hannah. Mm-hmm. Hanoi would start to drop leaflets to us and say, go home, black man. Mm-hmm. Your fight is at home. And just you start to think, well, that's right. There are places, you know, 12, 13,000 miles away from home that I can't go in as a black man. Mm-hmm. And here I am fighting for democracy, supposedly, mm-hmm. for people who are not my people. And uh, so she was saying, you know, you need to go home. And you think So I began to think about those things. And as a result of that, I became even angrier. I became angry. Uh, with white folks or those who uh, were in charge and uh, uh, begin to formulate some opinions and uh, perspective of hurt and harm. And uh, so I wasn't a pacifist. I wasn't a Martin Luther King um, advocate. I was born Malcolm X by any means necessary. So I took on that philosophy and began to prepare myself to come home Mm. if I got home and become a revolutionary. It wasn't about marching and dogs biting without me trying to bite back, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, wow, so that's interesting. So you're in Vietnam fighting this war, and now you're becoming politically aware. Your natural intellect is coming out. You're starting to say, wait a minute, what is all the, what, what am I doing? What am I doing here? You're on, you're basically 24-7 hyper-aware that you could die any moment. It's survival, fight or flight. Fight or flight. And then you're seeing all this turmoil back at home and thinking, why am I not there? Right. That's a battle I should be fighting, you're saying. Exactly. My, my fight should be at home, yeah, first, if I'm going to fight. Now, when I must preface this with, I was very much loyal to the United States of America. I was, I'm, I still feel that way. I'm, I'm as much American as anybody. Yeah, I have heard you say, <laughs> I have heard you say, no better place to live than the United States of America. States, and that's right. Nobody will take that away from me. I won't allow anybody. That's, I'm an American. This is where I am. This is where I was born. This is my country. And um, I love it. And um, so I went with that attitude because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, our heroes were people like Ollie Murphy and a Magnificent Seven and Army movie. We played Cowboys and Indians. And as a kid, that's what we did. So. Yeah. I wanted to fight. I wanted to fight. I joined. So again, I wasn't drafted. I'm like, where's the fight? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fighting out here. I, I t- now teach me how to fight. So they taught me how to fight in a different kind of way. So now I'm prepared in a different way. Not only street fighting, but now I know how to fight in a different Real way. Real fighting. Yeah. Milit- militaristic fighting and other tactical fighting. Right. So I want to just make sure make this point. So now you're thinking, how do you cope with that? So here I am, uh, and that's when I first got turned on to marijuana was Vietnam because most people were going, man, we got to, how do we cope? So people either drank or smoked. Most of I'll be very general about that. And not everybody, obviously, but I say the majority of people I ran to from officers to enlisted men, mm-hmm. you cope somehow. So you didn't drink after work or you smoke something or some kind of way to help you cope with all that was going on, all the devastation mm-hmm. that was going on around you. So I got turned on to smoking. Okay. In Vietnam. And that was the first step in terms of some things that will come later when I get back to the United States. Okay. So how long were you in Vietnam then? A year? 
11 months and 26 days. I don't know who's, who's keeping counting, count. right? no, who's counting, yeah. <laughs> so you survived. Thank God for that. Uh, you yes. are here. You weren't wounded at all. Uh, Did not you get physically. Wounded I got physically? wounded. No, I got wounded emotionally. Emotionally, of course, like many veterans. Yeah. But physically, you made it unscathed without unscathed a major injury. Without any major injury, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And I don't want to. I don't want to um, minimize the significance of that. But I, I, I know that we're we're coming up to this redemptive story. You, you know, you've got anger, rage. You're coming back to the United States. Um, and for the business listeners in our audience, I, I, I want I want them to also know, like in terms of where you worked. So you talked about you worked in a steel mill. You worked in the U.S. Army, and you know, without going deep, just give us a quick view, like vocationally, what you did afterwards, and then we'll come back to some more detail. Okay, yeah, so coming back, trained in, again, uh, uh, munitions. Uh, I came back in looking for jobs. So I, steel mill pretty much is, was the, for working class people, where my dad went, and so that became generational. You know, your dad worked there, he'd get you a job, and uh, I didn't want that. But I, t I had nowhere else to go, so I took, uh, test for post office, passed that. I was going to be a postman. I went into the mail, though, and started working there. I think I may have worked. I may have made it two weeks. In the mail? Girl. In the mail, yeah. And so, um, anyhow, I quickly left that job, and I got a job. I got hired at a Ravenna Arsenal place in a little town close to us called Ravenna. And uh, making munitions. As a civilian? As a civilian. Working at Ravenna Arsenal. Right. Okay. Now, I'm still in the Army, but I'm in Army Reserve. So, Army Reserve, okay. Yeah, because you had a six-year commitment. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, so I'm working in Ravenna uh, Arsenal. Okay. And then after that? Well, after that, I had that's where my first encounter with the law. Now, I came back from Vietnam, again, uh, very angry, prepared to hurt some folks, and white folks in particular. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm, I'm prepared uh, to do that. And... Got everything I need to do that. I'll just leave that there. From from dynamite to small arms, I'm prepared. So in hindsight, it was only God who kept me from from doing what I thought I wanted to do. Mm. And and what happened, what saved me, while it's a horrible thing, was my involvement with drugs. So I'm angry, an angry black man, and I want to hurt some people. And I met a guy one day, and a guy turned me on to some morphine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm 20. Yeah, I feel invincible. I feel, I do. That's how I'm feeling. Nothing can get me. And I know people get addictions, but I'm like, they get them, but I'll not never. You. Not me. They can get it. I'll never get one. Uh, so anyhow, that first shot of morphine, became the second shot and the third shot. And from there to other opiates, primarily heroin. I started using heroin. That's when I was still working at Ravenna Arsenal. And so it's very difficult with an addiction, an active addiction like that, to work and because you're spending all your money. As soon as I get it, I, I'm spending it on drugs. So yeah. um, that job didn't last very long. So I started to rob and steal and do those kind of things, things that I thought I never would do. I, I, I really went to the service. Part of that was to escape some of that. So I'm going to get away from that. Mm -hmm. But I find myself doing what I thought I'd never do. So I'm robbing, stealing. 
and uh, end up catching a case, we like to say on the street, I got, I got busted for armed robbery. Mm. This is 1970. And uh, I remember going before the judge, and uh, it kind of rescued me because I, 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 there weren't rehabs at that time. There was nowhere to really get a whole lot of help from mm -hmm. those kind of things, uh, even if you wanted it. But, so jail snatched me out of it. I had cold turkey, and jail was horrible. That it must was, have been difficult. Oh, it was horrible. Jail, Youngstown City Jail was no joke. And it was, you know, so I got sentenced. I went before the judge. I remember telling him, listen, I just got back from Vietnam. Man. Can you, is there any way I can get a break? He said, I'm going to give you a break, all right. I'm going to break you off 10 to 25 years uh, in the prison. Wow. That. And they weren't talking post uh, PTS at that time. Right? That term wasn't around. They were just mm. shell shocked or whatever they called it. But I had obviously had some issues. Um, so I got sentenced to uh, prison and uh, with an armed robbery. And this is a whole nother story. So now how am I going to navigate prison? So I know how to take care of myself. And, you know, here you got Mansfield is where uh, Shawshank Redemption so was. you're in Mansfield, yeah. I'm walking in there and uh, wondering how I'm going to make it, how am I going to survive, you know, and what will I have to do to survive? And uh, so you got, at that time, 3,000 young men under the age of 25, full of testosterone, everybody trying to act like they're the toughest Angry. thing. And the toughest thing on the planet. So to come in and start dealing with that. So I know one or two things can happen. You could, could take on that persona of, uh, the bad things, learning how to do more crime, or there's opportunities for you to advance and do other things. So I wanted out. I knew this wasn't my, you know, 30-foot walls with gun towers on them. I knew that wasn't what I wanted. So I began to ask questions. I learned how to, to get a trade. What do you, what, what's going to get me out of here? First of all, I'm going high. So I had 10 to 20, I had 38 months before I could ever go to the parole board and even ask for a parole. But you actually could could learn a trade there. Could learn a trade. And what was the trade? The trade was stationary engineering. And which uh, is power power generation. Power generation. Yes. Which is a fairly significant trade. Yes, it is. Because we need that electric, don't we? So felt pretty good about being on the bottom end of that spectrum in terms of producing it. But I never thought I would use it. I was simply getting it for to get out because they say if you get this, the parole board has never refused anybody okay. that got this license because they know they're least employable mm -hmm. when they get out. So that's that was my motive. Anyhow, I got it. In that, I went back to school because I quit school actually when I was 17. I went back to school, got my high school diploma. Mm -hmm. Then I started going to college. Oh my. And from within prison or when you got out? I was in prison. The professors would come in. Impressive professors were from Ashton Theological Seminary. Wow, a great institution. Great institution. So they started to come in and they're teaching us. And, uh, and at about that time, I was, what I became was an, what they called an honor inmate because I kept my nose clean. I stayed out of trouble. I'm trying to get out. I, I wasn't trying to be a career <laughs> person in prison. Anyhow, so... Uh, they started a program in 1972 called a furlough program for, this was for inmates who, uh, early release. You weren't completely released, but you could come out and go to school, go to college. You could work a job, 
so employers were hiring inmates, at least giving them a chance hmm. uh, to get started on, on in a vocation somewhere. So mine was uh, college. I came and passed the college exam. I was the second guy in the state of Ohio to be released on this furlough program. Really? Yeah, the first guy ran. <laughs> he took off. So they, so I'm standing before they say, you know how to behave yourself. I said, yes, sir, I should do. And that wasn't a great example for them to be able to. <laughs> no, but I really wanted to do good, John. I really wanted to do well because I knew there were other inmates who I was representing. At least yeah, right. where they'd a, get a chance. Yeah, good. But when I came out, I didn't, what I, what I know now, I didn't have the power to do good on my own, not for long. So I started going to Akron University. And I was not long until I met the dope man, the guy was in prison with me. He had the, he had the heroin and said, hey, uh, you want to try this? And uh, I like to call um, the devil to God one more time. Because what's one more time going to hurt? Go ahead. Who's going to know? Mm. You could do it. And from there, I got addiction again. And I'm on parole. I'm still on furlough. I'm not even parole yet. So, Okay. Hindsight, God was in all of this. Yeah. And especially when I came to this halfway house. I came to this halfway house, you had to have that. I went to Kent State first. I was approved to go to Kent State, but they didn't have a halfway house for inmates. But Akron did. Called okay. the Denton House. The Denton House was founded by Christians. I, Mr. Denton. Mr. Denton. Papa Denton, we called him. Famous. Famous, yeah. Papa Denton had one of the first radio programs in the nation. Was Christian that on program. Brown Street? Or Furnace Street. Furnace Street, okay. Yeah, at that time was right down in the middle of the hood when Howard Street was what it was. Yeah, right. Yeah, they called it Skid Row. It was the Skid Row of Akron. So sure. he had a real heart for inmates and troubled people and those kind of things. So he started this house for him so we inmates coming out would have a place to go to get started. So I went there and um, encountered these Christians. And I wasn't a Christian. Obviously. In the halfway house? In the half, they were all yeah, they were all believers, Christians. So you had this motivation, you had this natural intellect, you wanted a better way, you were kept from doing the things you wanted, thought you wanted to do destructively by what is a bad thing to you, which is the addiction. And now after the cold turkey, you're out, and now the addiction thing is what grabbed you again. The, Grab me again. I went back, you know. Uh, you couldn't overcome it. The power of addiction and what it can do, you know. Again, it's what's one time going to hurt, you know. Sure. However you're dealing with that pain or whatever's in you mm -hmm. uh, that you're trying to grant, find some peace for. So I, that began to happen. One of the first things that happened to me there was the director of that, who was a believer, a guy named Dave Fair. I'll never forget him. And uh, he... Challenged me in a good way, but more importantly, his challenge was his life. I saw the peace in him, in this man. I saw compassion in his eyes. I saw a softness in his eyes. I remember him asking me, do you, Marshall, you know Jesus Christ? And, nah, I wasn't thinking about that. I don't know Jesus. Right. So, so those who might be listening that might be a, a believer, uh, when seeds are planted, they don't, you don't always see the fruition. You don't get the fruit the same day you plant the seed, mm. right? We know that analogy in farming. You, put, you plant the seed, you don't get it that same day. So Dave planted the seed. Dave Fair. Dave Fair. They'll forget him. And, I mean, our national audience won't know much about it, but our local audience in Northeast Ohio, he's 
he's a legend really in in Christian ministry and in counseling. Um, a friend of mine, Jay DePaulo, worked for Dave Fair and he had counseling in halfway houses and all kinds of things, but I didn't realize it started back this far and that you intersected that. That's a really great thing to know. It, it was a wonderful thing because all this is, is from still a very angry black man who don't care too much for white folks. And he's confronting you, asking you. Yeah, but his kindness and his love and the way he approached me impacted me it impacted in a way like something. nothing really had impacted me. Interesting. So the thing about that, it was three years later. I never forgot Dave Fair. Mm. Three years later where I went, met my wife so on campus, was able to fool her long enough. I still had this addiction, but I was able to fool her long enough until... You met her on campus, you said? On campus, yeah. She uh -huh. was the finest woman on campus. <laughs> In my opinion, but so um, anyhow, I met her. Uh, we started to date. Uh, got her to marry me. Um, I, you know, I was a theater major and mass media communication. That's what I was majoring in. So she was at the radio station. All this, the arts, that part of the arts, performing arts, was in the same building. Uh, Colby, if you were into acting. Colby Hall. Colby Hall. This so, is the late 70s, mid 70s? Early 70s. Early 70s. She's about ready to graduate. I get there in, in Akron in January 3rd, 1973, is when I remember coming to Akron, Ohio. And she graduated in fall of 74. So we're dating. Um, and um, I get her to marry me in 74. And my addiction then becomes to the forefront in our relationship over time and uh, she decides to uh, leave me, separate from me, and she did separate from me. I'm working at the same time as a drug counselor with a oh, drug. So, you're, you're working, so you weren't working in your stationary engineering? Not yet. You're still going to school. I'm in school. Still and furloughed. I, and I'm working as a drug and counselor. And you're working as a drug counselor. Yeah. With a habit. With a habit. Yeah. Okay. So you can, you can you can see all fool some of the people some of the time, right? <laughs> right, you see all the deception in that, and all of that comes with addiction. So anyhow, we um, she separates. I go ahead and start to do everything. I'm big enough and bad enough to do everything I think that can, uh, that'll give me peace. Mm -hmm. Everything, all the drugs I want, women, you name it, I'm thinking, this will give me some peace. And the thing about it is it does give you peace, but it's temporary. Mm -hmm. Doesn't last. That's why you have to go back and get some more. So, I'm, I, I hit bottom in the midst of all that. With her leaving me, go by her house one day. I'm gonna just shorten this story up, but it's a lot in there. So I go by the house to visit her one day, and she's on her way to divorce court. It's over. She said, but in my heart, I'm going. It's not over. <laughs> you know, she was my hope. I had no hope in anything else but this woman. I love this woman, and. Uh, so I'm just hoping that somehow they know how they would come in. So I go back to visit her one day, and she's, she was different towards me. So I said. So was this the same time she was on her way to divorce court? Yeah, she moved out, had her own apartment. I go by apartment to visit. She calls me and said, she asked me how I was doing. And looked me in the eye in a way she hadn't looked at me in a while. Wow. And I lied and said, well, I'm doing okay. She didn't know how you're really doing. I said, I'm making it, I'm surviving. So she said, have a seat. I'm going to tell you something. Things are going to be different for us. I'm like, well, I'm now, I'm excited because 
there's an opportunity. Maybe maybe the door maybe is open. Maybe there's a little you know. glimmer yeah, of light. A little glimmer of light. So she says, uh, I said, what's up, baby? She said, uh, I got... Uh, I got saved. Now, if you are saved, that's an evangelical term, and you don't know what that meant. I didn't know what it meant. You didn't know what it meant. I just what knew it, it meant good because she was something good towards me. I'm like, oh, well, wonderful. She said, uh, why don't you come go to church with me sometime? And I said, sure, baby. You say jump. I want to know how high you want me to jump because I'm trying to get back. That's what I'm, sure. all I'm looking at. You I'm, wanted to reclaim your marriage. I wanted Katika. I wanted this woman. Mm-hmm. So I went to church with it. I like to tell you I went down the first time, but I'm playing, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm living, still out in the street, and I'd go back, and she was just patient. But God used her as a new believer in a, in a really great way, her patience with me. She said, okay, you know, I missed one day and said, hey, pick me up here, and wouldn't show up, things that addicts do. Uh, she, uh, she was patient. She said, oh, okay, next time. How about Wednesday? So you're saying as a... She got saved, and you were saying, as a new believer, so you're saying that in that context, she was she had become a believer in Jesus Christ. She had put her trust and faith in him. Exactly, John, yeah. And so that, that was her new thing, and you saw a physical, you saw a difference in her. Something was different, just similar to maybe Dave Fair, but you saw something different in her. Very different. Why in the world would she be hanging on with you. When she's, yeah, it was all about getting You're still away from letting me. her down. You're going through the yes. motions at church, you're saying. Right. But she's still inviting me. Now, she tells me, she talked to one of the men in church, one of the elders, we would call him in the church, and she, he said, well, who is that you're bringing? She said, well, that's my husband. She said, she said, we're separated. He said, do you want him back? She said, oh, I can get him back. I want him to get saved. I want him to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want for him to have. Interesting. And he said, okay, well, we'll be praying about that. So I didn't, unbeknownst to me, they're praying about it. But I'm going to this little, it's a little storefront church, and I'm going to this little church, and I'm not thinking anything about Jesus. This is in Akron, Ohio? Akron, Ohio, 513, 515 West Thorn Street, to be exactly. Okay. And so I'm going to this little place, and it's a little storefront. I mean, it's maybe 30, 40 people there. But I, when I'm going, I begin to hear some truth from God's Word as this preacher, this young preacher. He was a young guy at the time, 23 or something. He's proclaiming this truth. And God began to speak to me in my heart. And I begin to come under conviction about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, so I had all my questions, you know, what... God, if you're really up there, you don't exist. I went through all of that. Uh, but if you are, I asked him one night, will you show yourself to me? Will you reveal yourself? Everybody else, they're telling me about you, but I want to experience you myself. So I asked that question. Through this process of going to church and hearing God's word proclaimed. Now I'm there, remember, just trying to get back with this woman. I really, it wasn't, I wasn't looking for God, but he was looking for me. Mm. So I began to hear this truth, and I had to do something with this truth. And one of the things I heard that really turned the corner for me was, uh, he said, the scripture said, Behold, today is the day of salvation. You can come as you are. Because I was wrestling with this truth and really wanting to change in my life. 
I said, come as I am. Well, wait a minute. I'm living with a woman who's not my wife. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. You mean I can come just as soon as I get that straightened out, I'll come. I want to come. I see what they're doing. I'm liking what I'm hearing. I'm liking what I'm seeing. But I got a few things in my life I need to get straightened up first. He said, no, behold, come as you are. I said, I can come this way. And that moved my heart in such a way that I, that particular night, I'm uh, in the Christian faith, what we would call make a profession of faith. I said that Jesus was the Son of God, that he had died for my sins and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he loved me. What I heard was the message of love, not of condemnation, of guilt, shame. I heard a message of love, that this God loved Marshall Brandon. You mean me? He could love me? I'm messed up. So I heard that message, and I said, yes, I, I want that. And I, uh, this is where the story turns. This is June of 1977, and I go and ask the pastor, can I pray? What do I need to do? And he said, pray the simple prayer of faith with me. And that was a prayer of asking Jesus Christ, giving him the right to come into my heart and to save me, and uh, confessing that he was Lord. And I did that. It was so simple. And uh, my life began to change. He took away my active addiction on the spot for me. He delivered you from addiction on the spot. Delivered, that's the term. Yeah, he delivered me on the spot. You're, you're, you're trying to get back in relationship with your wife, Katika. You're seeking that relationship. God is seeking a relationship with you. And you're, he's using her and this place in the process unbeknownst to you. Unbeknownst to me. And then the unconditional love that she's showing to you, you're feeling this greater unconditional love from? From God. From God. Yeah. So you, so literally this day you're saying the pivot started. The pivot started for Marshall and, Brandon. And, and we should we should kind of do a little bit of a spoiler now and let people know that this is, some of this stuff is in the book, right? That's correct, yes. And that, and that many refer to you, I haven't referred to you as this yet, but many refer to you as Pastor B., Yes. Because you went from angry, let's blow people up, prison, addiction, fake it till you make it, to now a pastor who has been big in racial reconciliation and preaching the gospel and all these things. You've worked in business and migrated through your, your passion, your avocation from business into what we call vocational ministry, right? That's correct, John. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to do a little spoiler alert there. And is is some of this information in the book? Yes, it is. Very much um, very much in the book. Yeah. So so the book, again, the book is called Someplace to Be Somebody. So Someplace to Be Somebody. Um, why the title? Well, as a as a a black man in America, as a, a poor man in America, um, mm. all the reasons I had to feel like I was a nobody. I didn't feel like I had any worth, any real value, things that in America would say that you're successful, whether mm. it's school or college position, or, or, or status. Your own company owners, those things, position, status. I had none of that. So I felt, man, do I really matter? Am I, who am I? I'm really a nobody. And then uh, with my transition with God, God began to say, oh, no, you are somebody. You're, 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 
You're created by me. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. In your mother's womb, I made you. And your days are numbered by me. You are special to me, and I care about you. And I told myself, I love you, and I die for you. So that began to give me that, man, I am somebody. Mm. I'm somebody in Christ. Marshall Brandon, in and of himself, is nobody. But because of Christ's righteousness and what he did for me and the world, and I say personally for me, it began to give me a, a realization of that I am somebody, that I have value, and I have worth to God Almighty. And because he's equipped me and how he's equipped me to others, I can be, could be a somebody to, mm. uh, to others as well. So this is the some place to be somebody in Christ, you're saying, that yes, that was the transformation moment. That was the transformation moment. Made you go from feeling like a nobody to a somebody. Over process. It didn't happen, you know, right away. Obviously, no. I'm still in the same place, so it wasn't a miracle like that. But as I, the more I grow in Christ, I continue to get greater understanding of my worth and my value to God Almighty. Mm. And so you, you had this moment, this profession, and... Uh, you said you were delivered from the addiction right away, which is pretty significant. But did the marriage restoration take time? It was, uh, it, it, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would like to say just, here's how it went down. I, I say, hey, hey uh, sweetheart, and I'm basically homeless, but I'm living off other people and living with other people, but I don't have a place in my own place that I'm paying rent. I wasn't working. Mm -hmm. So when I gave my heart to Christ, or when I said yes at that church that night, one of the things, one of the elders there asked me, what, what do you want us to pray for? I said, I need a job. And he said, okay, we'll pray. Two weeks I had a job. And where did you have the job? City of Akron. The city of Akron? Yeah. In which department? Water department. Okay. So I went to work in the water department. Now I'm still staying with a woman who's not my wife. But I know I need to get out of this situation. So, I, and she knows. It. I mean, that that wasn't. I said, "Listen, I need to move out of my situation." And I'm not saying you and I get back together, but uh, can I stay with you till I could get on my feet, till I could get enough money to get my own place? And she said, "Yes." And I just like to say that was 43 years ago, and I'm still there. I haven't left yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so God did this wonderful work. She let me back years. in, and in the process of forgiveness, earning her trust back because trust was lost. I mean, mm. deservedly so. Yeah. So if while we that process started, I had to win her trust back, and uh, I began to do that and learn the things that I need to do with what that looked like uh, from God's perspective and from his word and how I could do that. So I'm in that process still. Yeah, that process never stops, does it? But are you telling me, um, are you trying to tell me, are you trying to tell our audience that if you have an issue with alcoholism, if you have an issue with drug addiction, if you have a workaholic tendency like me, if your marriage looks like it's over, that there's actually still hope. That, I mean, that that's what I'm hearing. That from divorce to 43 years together, you're saying there there is hope. There is hope, John. Actually, actually, it's 43 years back together. Actually, we'll celebrate our 47th anniversary uh, this September. Congratulations. However, the three years in there were rocky. Okay, but 43 years back together, being on the same page. Again, developing some of the same value systems, 
What I am saying is exactly that because that's what I know experientially and also I know it intellectually and I know it from God's word. It says that with God, nothing, no thing is impossible. Nothing. So marriage, drugs, emotional issues, whatever they may be. Money issues? Money issues. With God, nothing is impossible. Hmm. You are a living testimony to that fact. Yes, I am. It, you and many others, but we're talking about you right now. That's and right. That, that's, that's what's meaningful is, is your, your testimony, your narrative, your story. It's undeniable, right? Undeniable. Yeah, that's why I tell it and I want to tell it, and that's what God would want me to do. This is not about me buckling up my bootstraps and tightening them up and getting out doing it myself. Even though there's work involved, I had the help of God now, whereas I was doing it on my own before. Now there's a new narrative, and there's a new power and a new motivation, which comes from God. I'm kind of reminded, I, I you know, as you're talking, it just kind of hit me that I'm reminded of, of Galatians 2.20 which says, if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And, and Newt Larson, when he was preaching at the chapel, he used to say, you know, Newt Larson is still here, but Newt Larson without Christ no longer exists. It's Christ in Newt Larson. And the, and the same with John Wheaton or Marshall Brandon or whomever. And I, and I like that. The old is gone. The new has come, meaning... The, the old might be present, but the old nature sounds like left to, is no longer left to itself. There's a new nature that is indwelled, and that it is warring with the old nature, and it's going to create a new person with some, shall we say, leaning in, right? Yes. Some effort. Some effort, yeah. Some submission. And yeah. you obviously put forth some of that effort. How, how long did you work for the city of Akron? Do you know? It was actually one year. One year. And my wife and I began, now we're back together. She's seeing some <laughs> some hope. She's seeing a guy. I'm starting to, you know, win some trust. We begin to talk about a family. We like to have a family. And uh, so I prayed. I literally prayed. Speaking of addiction, God had different. Let me just say this because I think it's important because I know a lot of people struggle with cigarettes. Now, he, did, he delivered me <laughs> from... Um, heroin, opiates, you name it. I did a little bit of it all. But I still smoked cigarettes. Oh, okay. I had a powerful addiction. And I remember asking God, Lord, I want you to deliver me. Would you deliver me from these? And uh, in that process, I remember smoking one night, doing my regular thing. And after I prayed this prayer, I got up the next day and lit a cigarette. And I got so sick. Really? Sick, like nauseated. Right away I knew. I knew we connected. I mean, I connected vertically. Like, okay, I threw him down. I haven't smoked a day since then. Wow. And that certainly was 42 years ago, I think. Amazing. And uh, so, um, yeah, so in the process of um, Tik and I, where were we? Uh, where was I? You were saying you're talking about getting a family. We started talking about, a yeah. You're so, at the water department, and right. she's seeing some sustainable activity from you. and. Right, so she said, let's do it. So we began to um, try to get pregnant. Uh, so I prayed and asked God for a job that I could support my family. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, actually I went and took the test. I like working with my hand. I wanted to be a carpenter. I wanted to learn that trade. 
A carpenter. Yes, and I took the test to become an apprentice. And anyhow, for whatever reason, I failed the test. Would that have been a union job? Would have been a union job. The, the carpenter's union? Mm-hmm. Okay. And very depressed about that. But uh, then I have a lady from the um, Unemployment Bureau called and said, would you be interested in Ohio Edison is hiring? Would you be interested in applying for a job for them? I said, yes, I would. So when I went and applied, uh, I brought my license with me. Your stationary engineer license? Yeah, they were just looking to hire. They didn't know I had this engineering license, uh-huh. which I had stopped. You had to renew it every year. Sure. My mother was renewing it for me. Really? Well, I'm, a, I'm in my addiction. I was, But she would send it in and kept it renewed. I never thought I would use that, ever. You know, can we just give a shout-out to the moms? I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, Mom. Without yes. the moms, yeah. where would we be? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's amazing. That's amazing. This is something I never thought. So here I, got, I have this my license. So, um, And I knew God was in this. The guy, the, the human resource man, that, uh, Mr. Cooper Ryder was his name, that I interviewed with, um, we began to, interview and then he said are you a believer a Christian and I know that's probably a lot of things they can't do these days but he did ask me and I said yes sir I am he said well man what's on my so we begin we have more a great dialogue on that interview let me say so he said these words listen I don't have the final say but let's just leave it up to God and I said Mr. Cooper Ryder and I'm only about two years into my walk with the Lord and I said if God doesn't want me to have it I don't want it Hmm. I didn't get home good, and they were calling me. When they saw the license, they were like, can you go out to the Gorge Power Plant and, and do an interview? When I got there, this is how I knew it was God. Uh, the manager of the plant said, listen, you can start whenever you want to start. Wow. Because I'm trying to do things the right way. I'm saying, I'd like to give a two-week notice to my employer. To the water department. To the why he said you can start whenever you want to start. Amazing. Not, we need you this week, we need you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. giving it on your terms. Those words resonated with me because I, knew God, this was, I knew God had opened this door for me. Because God opens doors that no man can close. Mm. Closes doors that no man can open. And he opened that door for me, so I began to work there. I started to work, actually, they went on strike. I was supposed to report <laughs> that Monday. In the com- and they went on strike? They had a strike and... Who knows? Oh, my goodness. Maybe two in the history of the company. How long were they on strike? Three months. Oh, jeez. And you didn't get paid? No, but I got another job. I went, okay. In the meantime, I went but, to work. I found a way to make some money. But how long were you at First Energy then? Uh, 17 years. 17 yeah. years. Yeah. And that plant is no longer there. That plant, of course, First Energy still exists. Of course, the Gorge yeah, plant is no longer yeah, there. no longer there. Coal fire, you know, with wow. the EPA and those kind of things. There. So so we, we've got about 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 left max. So let's let's move to this again. This is in the book, right? Some of this stuff is in the book? Some of this is in the book. The book, again, Some Place to Be Somebody. And we know now why it's titled Some Place to Be Somebody. But we're still, I mean... There's still a long way to go here in your etymology, your history. So 17 years with First Energy. But what was your, you described it as your avocation at that time that developed more and more because many know, many people only know you now as Pastor Brandon. 
Pastor B. They wouldn't have even known you worked for over 20 years in other stuff. So how did the, how did the change from First Energy to pastoral work, addiction ministry, how did that happen? Did, was that like one day you showed up and said, I'm going to go do this? Or was it an avocation that developed over time? How did that work? Great question. Um, I, uh, I got, so I gave my heart to Christ in 1977 and started working at First uh, Energy, called it Ohio Edison at the time. And one of the pastors at the church, um, I guess Ohio, uh, anyhow, I started, he said, why don't you go back and start sharing your story? So having this history of being in prison, being a drug addict, ex-drug addict, I said, I'm going to go back and start telling people. Back where? To prison. Back to prison. Going to back Mansfield? to where I came from. Going back to the streets. Wow. So I started going back to the streets. They would say, wait a minute, where have you been? You know, I'm looking different. I'm looking fresh. I'm, where have you been? They thought I went off and did another prison stint. I stayed away for probably about a year or so without going back to some of the same old friends. So anyhow, I started going back. God gave me a jail ministry. I got involved with a ministry called the Way Out Prison Ministry. A guy named Esley Patch. Esley Patch, yeah. Yeah, I started. So we started, We were, every weekend, we were headed down to a prison, Chillicothe, back to Mansfield, where I was, uh, where I did my time. What a great feeling that was, to be able to walk in that place uh, with the Bible and share the gospel and walk out. Yes. When I wanted to walk out. And a great example as the second person who was second furloughed. Person. Listen, this is not special for Marshall Brandon. God could love me. He could love anybody. Hmm. I'm here to tell you what he's done in my life and what he's done for me. He'll certainly do for you. So that was my message. In that, I'm honing skills, speaking skills. So uh, doing that for 15 years or so. 15 years. Yeah, my avocation. <clears throat> my wife would go with me. We'd pack up until the children were born. And then she started to stay more at home with them while I would go out and, and do prison ministry. So we did in the city. We'd follow them in, you know, uh, down to the prison, letter writing, taking buses down to visit their uh, loved ones in prison, those kind of things. So that's what I began to do as my avocation. And what a great way to give back. And so then God began, I began to feel a sense of a calling, we call it. Mm -hmm. Scripture calls it a calling. God calls you. But I'm saying to myself, I'm nobody, right? I could never do that. I'm a drug addict, ex-con. I'm, I'm all the things that people run away from. They, who would, you know, I could never go into ministry. And so this call was on my heart, so I'm torn about it. And I'm, I'm moonwalking. I'm doing a Jonah. I'm running the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running the other way. I'm like, no, I'm wrestling with this. I'm not even talking, but I'm wrestling with it. So here I'm at Ohio Edison, and uh, I'm wrestling with this, and I'm listening to a radio station, a Christian radio station in this area called WCRF. And there's a pastor on there named Warren Wiersbe. And Warren Wiersbe is preaching this message, and part of his message this day is, uh, bloom where you planted. So in this blooming where you planted, my wrestle with God was, I finally said, yes, okay, I'll do it. And I'm thinking, all right, it'll be tomorrow, it'll be next week. I'm all excited. I'm telling people, I'm going into the ministry. I finally said yes. And then this, it didn't happen. 
And the funny thing, you know when it happened, John? It happened, this was in 1993. It didn't happen until 1995. It was 1983. I didn't go into ministry until 12 years later. 12 years later. But I kept doing my application. You kept doing, you kept blooming where you were planted. I was blooming. I really, it changed my attitude. Because then I was angry. To be honest, I got angry with God. I'm like, yeah, you called me. You haven't called me out of this. What's the, hey, when is this going to happen? Maybe, and then I started saying, well, maybe it's not going to happen. I got it twisted. It was me. Mm. It wasn't you. It was, was what you were, it was what you were called to do in the space you were in. Exactly. I thought, well, okay, all right, I get it. So I just became the best employee I could become. I always was, believed in working hard, showing up, doing that, going the extra mile, because that was part of my testimony. As a Christian, I believe we should do that. We should work like that. We should work with excellence, uh, no matter whether we're management or, or an employee, an employer or employee. So I worked hard, and, and man, God began to do some great things right there. It was a number of fellow employees who um, also began to say yes to Christ as their personal Savior. And uh, so that began to happen. And when I had pretty much um, given up going into the ministry in terms of full-time vocation, God then opened the door. When I finally said, all right, I surrender. I don't know what I've done, God. I'm trying to do everything I can right. I give. I said, whatever it is, I give. And uh, that's when the opportunity came for me to go start working at a homeless mission. Hmm. I said, I don't know anything about homeless. God, You why? mean to leave Ohio Edison and go to the... They say, you're crazy. I take 50% pay cut. I'm like, this is what God's called me. I'm going. I'd say yes. So and this was, was 1996? 1995. 1995. And that homeless ministry is known as? Haven of Rest Ministries. In Akron, Ohio. In Akron, Ohio. One of the finest homeless missions in the country, maybe in the world. I can, I can vouch for that, having personal experience with, with friends and family. It's good to be able to walk away from any job and say that's a great place to be. Yeah. You know, it's a great environment, whatever, you know, without bitterness or anger. So I say that about the Haven of Rest, so I want to give them a shout-out. But uh, So you went to the Haven of Rest? I went to the Haven of Rest. How long were you there? Five years. Five years. Five years. So in this five years, I'm comfortable again. I'm going, okay, this is where I'll retire. I love it. I'm loving the homeless. I've learned to love people who couldn't give you anything back mm -hmm. in return, just to love them. Like, and I, that was modeled there by the founders of that place. And I... Learned so much there about loving people who, uh, in, in my opinion, really prepared me for, for the pastorate, to be able to love and not expect anything in return in that sense. You, you made a very significant statement to me one time when I called you about a particular situation, and uh, it was something I think you developed from the Haven, and you said, John, just remember, every day, free from addiction, Every day sober is a good day. And the next day, it just gets repeated. And you say, every day, don't think about for this person, what about six months from now? But that every day, you just t take that day. It's really a one day at a time when it comes to that. But I, that was very meaningful to me. And I've actually applied that in other things, not just with addiction, but you know, whether it's work or whether it's a situation in, at work or in a relationship, you know, it, it, every day free from X or sober to this, it, it's a good day. Yes, one day, it does go back to the one day, living in the present. 
because yesterday we don't have and tomorrow we certainly don't have. What we have is today and we can make good decisions on this day. On this day. And so yeah. we get tomorrow, we want to start do it all over again. Yeah, and it really is I, I I would always borrow on tomorrow in the path like like, does it mean we don't plan for the future in life and business? No, we look to the horizon. But we literally, tomorrow is just a, a thought in our mind because we're created in the image of God to be able to think in the future, which doesn't exist yet, in the past is done. We can't relive it or change it. All we can do is be informed by it. So literally, Lamentations 3, 23, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed for his compassions never failed. They are new every morning. It's a new day, a new hope. And I, I don't know about you, but every day I wake up and I'm like, I'm really not sure what's going to happen with this day. Is this day going to be good to me or I'm going to, am I going to try to be, quote, good to this day? Mm. And the days change quite a bit, especially lately in the environment we've been living in, don't you think? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's an attitude. Uh, the Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. So when we get up with the right attitude. Mindset. Mindset. An attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference, mm-hmm. right? So if I have the right attitude of focus and it's going to be a good day, I'm going to work on it being a good day, at least as far as I can do. Or I can control as much as I can as myself in what I do, the decisions I make and the choices I make. So um, trying to do that every day, and it's one day at a time, and, of course, that's accumulative, yeah. you know, over time. I know. I kind of segued for a second because you're at the Haven. So... Um, in the in the um, interest of time, so you're at the Haven five years, and then did you move to pastoral ministry? You're saying after that, right? Which was pastoral, but not in your tradition. It was pastoral because right. I'm, I'm pastoring. I'm just not in a traditional church. Correct. I'm taking care of homeless. I'm loving them. I'm you know I am learning, mm-hmm. and so but then a pastor from a church. Well, actually, uh, a group of people from my church that I attended for 23 years uh, thought about joining, starting a new church. And they came and said, would you be our pastor? We want to start a new church. Would you be our pastor? Which kind of took me by surprise. I'm like, whoa, let me pray about that. I don't know. Let me talk to my wife. And I don't really even know how to be a pastor. Hmm. And uh, they said, well, pray about it. So we began to organize, uh, put things in place to start a church. And, uh, but then in the meantime, a pastor from a church, a suburban church, we had developed a relationship and they were looking to hire a pastor of evangelism and discipleship. And from the time we were spending together, he came and asked me, uh, we we're praying about hiring somebody and guess who we were thinking about? I'm like, Ooh, he said, you, <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, man. He said, well, just pray about it. You know, we're thinking about next year. So you pray about it. And I said, well, boy, that's quite a bombshell. So let me go yeah, in talk the midst to my of wife about else. it, and we'll pray about it. I'm not so sure. And the thing about the suburban churches is pretty lily white. This, this God has a sense of humor. Now, <laughs> he has this black militant. He said, I'm going to see you to a church that's 99.7 white. <laughs> And it. you're going to be a pastor there. So we eventually so joined the story. I went and said yes to that and started there. In How long were you there? I was there for 18 years. 18 years. Wow. Yeah. And what a wonderful work God did in the midst of that. In my own heart first because it always starts with me. 
and changing my heart. And we talked about the hate. And where I used to have hate, God put love in this place, John. Mm. He works on my heart. He changed my heart. So those people I hate now, I love. And he said, all right, I'm going to put you right in the midst of people you were hating, and you're going to love them. Mm. And they're going to love you. Wow. So something that only God could do in, in, in terms of helping, having people who feel have certain biases and prejudices against other people, how we can change our hearts so we, we can begin to love, which is what Scripture encourages those of us who belong to Christ to do. Have this love in your heart. Here's my commandment for you. Love me, love others. Sounds like love's more important than judgment. Love, is, it's, it covers a multitude of sins. It's the, it's the catalyst. Nothing happens without love that's sincere and long-lasting. One of the three things that won't, won't, won't fail, faith, love. hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Well, so if my math is right, correct me if I'm wrong, you spent as much time there as you did at Ohio Edison. Correct. But you've actually now spent a little, you've spent a little more time in what we would then describe as vocational ministry than in a more traditional secular vocation, even though I don't even believe in the whole difference between secular and sacred vocations. We're, we're either, a, yeah, we're in whatever space we're in, bringing whatever sacredness or secularism to that space and defining it accordingly, right? Correct, yes. So that's great. So what are you doing now? Uh, I like to, you know, put it in this context. I, like, I am loving God and loving people. And I like to say my agenda is what God gives me by circumstance. Mm. So God's sending people into my life. I'm, uh, I'm not currently attached, per se, to a traditional church as a pastor on staff. I am an elder at a, at a local church, mm -hmm. uh, Citizens. Uh, but uh, my personal ministry is um, counseling, premarital counseling. I'm currently, I do weddings. I do funerals when called upon. I do postmarital counseling, which mm -hmm. those of us who have been married a while know that that's necessary. That as may well. even be more important than premarital counseling. <laughs> it probably is if we're going to stay married. <laughs> it's, it's very important. But uh, so I get that privilege. I get the privilege of uh, being a part of a wonderful Bible study group. We call it a little Bible study or a church, and um, people who've grown together and learned to love one another like God would want us to do. And uh, that's a joy of my life. I am a Obviously, a husband, uh, a father. Uh, I've got uh, four children, uh, now 17 grandchildren. 17 five, grandchildren. Five great-grandchildren. Wow. Talk about a legacy. And for such a young man. For such a young man. How did that happen? <laughs> that is a legacy. I was telling another man we're familiar with today, um, another gentleman who called me about it. Um, his son being able to come now live with him, that the son's mother has agreed at 15 the son should be with the father. And uh, he said, I don't even know what to do with myself, John. I'm so excited. And uh, I said, well, you know what? God is using you. You know, a man that came out of addiction who was also delivered immediately from that. You know who I'm talking about. And he, he uh, I said, he's using you to be the curse breaker in your family of origin you and your wife and you're building a brand new legacy and it's kind of exploding all around him 
in three, four, five years, it's just exploding. And what a privilege to know him as well. It's pretty amazing. It is. And God does that. And that's another part of the story that whether we have time or not, but if I have an older son with my wife and not by, by my biological, he's not a biological child, but a son that had prior to us getting married. And that very same, same thing happened after I came out of my addiction and I started to learn what God would want a godly man to look like. What's that look like? I knew what a secular man looked like, but what's a godly man? How do I do this, God? How do I, I don't know how to father. I don't know how to parent. And God began to teach me that through his word and through other godly men who I saw living that out. And uh, my son, anyhow, I want to say this. Uh, when he was 16, I went to Youngstown. We went. And uh, we started to bring him over and, and to spend time with us. And he said uh, he was being raised in the project, so he would have had a totally different projection on his life. And he said, can I come live with you? I said, well, let me ask your mom, his, uh, my wife, his bonus mom, we'll call her, we won't call her a stepmom, but his bonus mom. And she said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So he moved in with us, changed the whole trajectory of his life. Whole trajectory school, of his life. Finished school, football team. He now lives in... Um, Chicago, Illinois. He's a detective on police force, hmm. and uh, so he's the popo now. Can you believe that? <laughs> I love it. Well, we got a, a a couple minutes left. Again, you have co-authored a book. Yes. The book is called "Someplace to Be Somebody." Do you know when the book's going to come out? They're saying pro probable February date, but you can pre-order now. So. Through Amazon? Through it's Amazon on those platforms and through Endgame Press. Endgame Press. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, we, to really do your story justice, we would need another hour. We're not going to take that hour. Um, some podcast listeners may still be hanging on. Some may have divided it up into a couple different sessions. Um, but before we close... Um, Anything you'd like to say before signing off? Any mindsets, any routines you you go through that you think lead to kind of healthy outcomes for you to help keep you grounded? Any any words of wisdom, just, just in general, anything that strikes you that you'd like to communicate? Yeah, first of all, for me personally, is is a focus daily. Again, I, we talked about that earlier, but it's a it's a one day at a time mindset for me and an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of being grateful. You mentioned this scripture in the Bible, his mercies are new every morning. So I am grateful for every day, uh, thankful when I'm in my right mind. And at this age, when the physical can begin to fail, uh, when my elbow's not hurting, my knee's not hurting, <laughs> Shoulders not hurt. I'm going. God, it's a great day. Thank you. I'm still able to function and be an instrument for you wherever you would want me to go and whatever you would want me to do. And He's given me the freedom to do that since my vocation um, is not tied to um, any particular organization at this time. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of a free willer, a freelancer, a free agent. So. Throw that out there. If you're looking for a free agent, maybe we can we can do some contractual. Let's talk about some business. We can do some contractual stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Um, you are on LinkedIn, actually, although you're not active there. You're on Facebook. 
you have any blog spots or anything else like that um, that that you do you write any blogs or anything or I don't if people were looking for you online would they would they find you on Facebook or Facebook on? Instagram Instagram yeah. okay mm-hmm. and uh, good okay we'll put that in the show notes if that's okay with you we'll put your uh, links to your platforms in the show notes um, we'll also put a link to the book in the show notes someplace to be somebody um the story's still being written though right Ooh, got a whole new chapter they're going to be so epilogues to this story i'm so excited about this new chapter what god has done it's a miracle only god could do and they say a miracle is something that only god could do and what he's done in, in my life here this last year is I can't wait to tell it. Since we don't have time, like you said, maybe another time or in the book or however it works out, we'll get an opportunity to tell Well, that. thank you for that, Marshall. It's, I'm going to, you know, regardless of of a, per- of a person's faith position, whether they do it as a basis of faith or what, I, what we many call the golden rule, um, is it turns out, Thankfulness and gratitude, which can be a struggle for us some days. You know, fatigue hits us, other mm-hmm. things. Thankfulness and gratitude is the number one predictor of personal satisfaction, business success, marital success. We can focus on the negative or the positive. And I, I know I've been on both sides of that fence, both mm-hmm. sides of that camp. And um, um, so gratitude and thankfulness is huge. Um, many folks out there are keeping a gratitude journal a three wins journal, things like that. We're just every day. And there's literally a chemical change in our brains when we do that. It doesn't mean we deny reality. It doesn't Mm. mean we like stick our head in the clouds or our head in the sand. Absolutely not. It means we're, we're looking at the victories and the positives around our life, not just the challenges and the negatives. Um, It's, it's about speaking the answer or the solution not the negative every time, acknowledging the problem, but then speaking the positive. And, I, you know, just even for the entrepreneurs out there, what was an idea in many people's minds became a physical functioning company. They spoke an idea into being, and the idea manifested itself impacting people's lives. And we can do the same thing. Mm. So I love that. Okay, well, thanks again for your story. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, He is Marshall Brandon. I am John Wheaton, host of the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be signing off now. Have a great day.